Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yeah, your dad, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week, man? Uh, it's been pretty good. I'm actually now recovering from vacation, if that makes any sense. You know how yeah, after you've been traveling, you need a couple days to yourself just to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of where I am after a glorious vacation. No, that's good. Yeah. Give, you know, after being away for some time, you come back trying to all right, let me get integrated back to the real world and what's going on and catch up with what I've been missing out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially because I was on a cruise. Um, so we did have like Wi-Fi, but it was weird because we could only use it on one device at a time. So, you know, sometimes we'd be switching back and forth. Sometimes we weren't using it at all. So like when it came to like news or just anything that was happening, I was like really out of the loop. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's a good thing, you know, to just be able to disconnect Yeah, <laughs> and be in a moment and enjoy your vacation and be present. Yeah, yeah it was. Surprisingly, though, um, over the course, so it was a seven day cruise. Over the course of the cruise, I actually suddenly felt like motivated to work a little bit. Like I didn't go hard, but I read like more than 100 pages. I was working on a, a revise and resubmit um, that is due soon. And it wasn't because I felt stressed. It's like, oh, my God. I need to do this. I think the environment just put me in a mood where I was just like so stress-free, so relaxed that I could focus on things that I really enjoy about work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think sometimes we just get in a wherever we're at where we have to do work. You know, mm-hmm. you feel pressure, you feel in this routine, you feel like you can't get a break. But I feel like sometimes you get your best work done when you're just like relaxed and you're just doing it because, you know, you feel like doing it, not because like you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just way more gratified feeling. And then you do some work and then you feel good about it. You don't feel drained. You don't feel like exhausted, you know? Yeah. So yeah, sounds like a good vacation to me that you had. Yeah, maybe I need to move to like a foreign country as I write my dissertation. <laughs> That'd be nice. Just by the beach. <laughs> be on the beach somewhere as you write. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm sure that'd be a dope presentation. I mean, dissertation too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how's everything for you? Long time no talk. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's been smooth. You know, uh, last last week of classes this week, um, uh, this Tuesday mm. is last day of classes. And so next week will be finals. So just everybody's handing in their final papers and stuff this week. So I'll just be doing, you know, the last push. There's a bunch of grading this week. And the next week, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm chilling. Summertime. Summer, summer, summer. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just getting through all these papers and all these emails of students asking for it. <laughs> like, like, I got to graduate, professor. I got to graduate. <laughs> I didn't come to class. I didn't turn yeah. nothing in. But can I still get the grade? I'm mm-hmm. just playing. I know none of your students are like that because your class please, is so awesome. Please, I wish. <laughs> I wish I could have that testimony, but that is not the case. That is hilarious. <laughs> um, but I, I know we got some things to talk about since we last spoke. So I guess we got to start with some old Lord news and see what else we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say. Oh, 
So speaking of traveling, I will not lie. There's so much going on with like planes in like recent weeks and months that when I got on the airplane, I was I was looking at it a little sideways. Like, mm, is it OK? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure you've heard there was a plane crash in Russia um, in Florida. A plane landed or skid off the runway and landed uh, in a river in mm-hmm. Florida. You yeah. know, everyone survived that uh, except for a dog, unfortunately. But, you know, I'm just like, what is really going on? Yeah, these planes. And that and that one in Florida was another Boeing. Yes, another <laughs> another Boeing. And that, you know, speaking of Boeing, oh Lord, news, it was actually just discovered that Boeing knew for several months that there were issues with the planes, but they did not tell regulators and they did not tell airlines. Like that wow. just officially came out. You know, they're trying to say that like, oh yeah, we discovered this, but we knew it didn't have anything to do with safety. But the issue that you uncover is directly related to that sensor or that light that was supposed to like alert pilots. So for them to try to say like, oh, it it technically wasn't related to safety and we were just going to like fix it in the next update. It's kind of like you knew and you didn't warn people and that second plane crash could have potentially been prevented. Yeah, that's wild that that happened. Because even with like little things like phones and stuff, when there's like a little bug, I always get like a email or a text like, oh, be on the lookout for this. We're fixing it now. We're updating it. Mm-hmm. But at least we know, you know, what's going on. If somebody is taking your information, you can at least stop it or, or look out for it. But and so you would think that the same thing would happen with planes where like people are in the air and their lives are in jeopardy. You want to make sure that everybody is well informed of what to look out for or what could be an issue as they work to fix it. So that's, um, there should be some consequences for that because people lost their lives for something that could have mm-hmm. been fixed if they just had the right knowledge of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are actually trying to get the 737 Maxes back in the air by the end of summer. Trust and believe when I'm booking my flights, I'm going to be looking to see what people are flying <laughs> because I'm not going to lose my life over like something like, like you are so concerned we're getting those planes back in the air, but you're not concerned with like human life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something, you know, and I've never looked at when I've been flying planes. I just always just hopped on a plane. But yeah, looking at these maxes, I'm like, OK, if it's a max, I might have to rebook or look for a different flight because because I don't trust them yet. Yeah. And actually, so Southwest is one of my favorite airlines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really like them. And they generally fly the 737 oh, Max. Yeah. They, of course, they're not doing it now, but they were like the biggest customer. But they were also one of the planes, um, the airlines that had made yes. sure they had the update and they were on top of things. Unlike what was it, like United. It was United. <laughs> <laughs> I never fly United. Yo, never. The only thing I have, sometimes I have to fly United because it's the. It's the uh, hub here in Newark. So it's like, uh, so a lot of the um, flights are, are united, but I try not to. Like when I went to Atlanta this past weekend, it was Delta. Yeah, I I like I love Delta. That's like my Delta favorite. and Southwest are, are, are my favorites. Yeah, me too. Me too. Okay, so for this next Oh Lord news story, speaking of, you, were, you said you were just in Georgia? Yep, yep. Okay, well, this- see my niece. Shout out to my niece, Miliana. Yay! But speaking of Georgia, a Georgia mayor is under fire after uh, 
saying that she couldn't hire a highly qualified person for an administrative job because he was black. What? Yes, and she, she said it to many. Sure. So her name is Mayor Teresa Kearnley. It's a city, you know, not too far, like 50 miles outside of Atlanta, but it's a predominantly white city. And they were looking to hire a city administrator. They had like five candidates. Um, and, you know, the mayor told like council members, like this person is highly qualified, but I don't think the city is ready for a black administrator. Oh my goodness. Why would you even, why is that so sad? Why would you even take that into consideration? Yeah. As long as the qualifications meet, nothing else needs to be met to discuss, right? Specifically was said, uh, because after she told the count, a couple council people, they were like, "Mm, we don't think this is right. And so they went to like the city lawyers and she said that uh, the mayor told them that the candidate was real good, but he was black and we don't have a big black population and that the city just wasn't ready for that. And what's crazy Mm -hmm. is a male city council member came out to defend the mayor and said some real crazy stuff. He confirmed his story, but was like, oh, the mayor was very tearful and, you know, very apologetic um, and described how the community didn't have a large black population. And the male council member said, I don't know that how they would take it if we selected a black administrator. She might be right. Then went on to say, I'm a Christian and my Christian beliefs are that you don't do interracial marriage. What? Yes, that's the way I was brought up. And that's the way I believe I have black friends. I hired black people. But when it comes to all this stuff you see on TV, when you see blacks and whites together, it makes my blood boil because it's just not the way a Christian is supposed to live. What they had to do with defending the mayor, dude, you just made a whole lot worse. (laughs) Yes. Yep. (laughs) Like, like he pulled something all the way out of left field to try to make sense of this. And yeah, you're right. He made it all the way worse. I don't know. The mayor probably like, yo, what you doing, man? (laughs) Shut up. Yes. Oh, my God. That's wild. Um, Mm -hmm. It's crazy how people try to use religion to to justify these crazy perspectives, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. But, um, and some Yes Lord news, because we're always talking about crazy stories. In Yes Lord news, for the first time in our history, there is a Black Miss USA, a Black Miss America, and a Black Miss Team USA. Hey, for the longest for that All one. that Black Miss USA is actually, uh, uh, I think she represents uh, incarcerated individuals. So she has like a social justice uh, band. Did you hear that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. She works on behalf of prisoners. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, it's definitely Yes Lord news. I've been seeing that being posted everywhere. Um, and, you know, like I just said, black women out here winning, winning, killing the game. Uh, and for the first time seeing that, to me, again, I don't have any daughters or anything like that, but now I have a niece. But it's just good to be able to, like, for them to be able to see that, you know, to yeah. see that representation. I'm like, yo, y'all can kill this game too, and y'all are great, and y'all are special, and y'all are amazing. And that's what always means a lot for me is these young kids being able just to, look up and see them, their faces, you know, mm-hmm. represented. I think 
think that's been the theme for the last few years in media and stuff like that is that representation matters. We need to see ourselves as beautiful. We need to see ourselves as superheroes. We need to see all of these different things because it does. There was actually this study that said, um, I think it was a study of like 400 black and white boys and girls. And they showed them like different like media clips and the only group whose self-esteem was not impacted by, you know, the media clips that they saw were white boys. Mm. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. So representation <laughs> matters, people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Yeah. So shout out to all the all the misses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you um, you know, any anything? So I've been away for, you know, seven, eight days. Like is there, what have I missed? You, you know, do you got something well, to yeah. tell me? Not, you know, um, I would say not a lot of crazy things happen while you're away, which is good. Uh, but there was some notable conversations going along social media while you're away. Uh, one of them had to be with uh, recently. I'll talk about this. Uh, you know, Jay Z recently did a B sides two um, show. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard about that. Um, they were reopening. I think this new spot in New York was well, not a new spot. It was an old spot. It closed down and it reopened. I can't remember the name right now. So he does like a B-Sides concert. This is the second time he doing it, which is just pretty much the non-popular songs that he had throughout his career. Um, so only when people do B-Sides, it's only like real, like hardcore fans that really know, uh, you know, Jay-Z stuff or whoever the artist is stuff go there because it's like stuff they normally never get to perform. Um, so anyway, while he was at this concert, he did a freestyle, um, you know, pretty much giving, paying respect to Nipsey Hussle. And um, during the during the freestyle, he said this line um, where he's talking about, you know, gentrify your own hood and talking to black folks. Right. In a way, like probably by everything back. But there was some controversy around that uh, because people felt that um, on one end, they felt that gentrification is a race thing where blacks can't gentrify their own hood. And then, two, um, they felt that, you know, why would you? promote this thing where you're raising property values and kicking people out of their own um, community. So there's a lot of controversy. Domain and have your people moving. That's a small glimpse into Nipsey moving to anybody still confused as to what he was doing. Make right the hood to keep us trapped. The red line of the probably declines if you live by black. I don't think they hear me though. Gentrify your own hood before these people do it. Claim eminent domain and have your people moving. That's a small glimpse into what Nipsey was doing. But anybody still confused as to what he was doing? The neighborhood designed to keep us trapped. They redlined it so property crimes if you live by blacks. They depress the asset and take the property back. It's a ruthless but a genius plan, in fact. So now we fighting over scraps. Crabs in the barrel, but crabs don't belong in the barrel. They ain't never tell us that. So in the barrel, we gonna act like we act. We can easily get out the barrel if we stand on each other's back. Whoever gets on top, as long as they stay attached, they can pull everybody out. I was doing just that. I told neighborhood nips to stay close. A hundred million dollars on your schedule, lay low. Tell your team to be on point in the places that they go. I never dreamed to get killed in the place that he called home. How we gonna get in power with you the sauce? But y'all like to run off on the plug, so of course. That ain't lit, that's what means to an end. Me and my team was playing the plug ahead of plan. Sometimes he's only making a thousand a joint. 
that ain't no money, but that ain't their point. So those 92 bricks was only 92 thou. So y'all can close your mouth. It ain't nothing for y'all to wow. But it is like to study. We was chasing our goals, not chasing money. Niggas chasing hoes, we find that funny. I pull up in the rows, that hoe gon' want me. But I don't want no hoe, I want a wife. Somebody to bounce these ideas off at night. I be going to sleep hoping men visit me. That young king had a lot of tools to split with me. And we ain't gotta leave the hood physically. But we gotta leave that shit mentally. Somehow, someway. I just want to know kind of what do you think your thoughts are on, on that um, gentrifying your own hood? Was he right? Was he wrong? Was it taken out of context? What do you think? Um, So I did miss that debate. Uh, uh-huh. But just knowing what I know about Jay-Z and like promotion of black education, black business, he has scholarships. I don't think he would mean it in a way like less displaced poor black people, even if it is black people coming in to like raise property values. I actually agree with that concept. Like 10 years ago, I was like a freshman or not, not a freshman, but I was in college. And there was this neighborhood in my hometown that had like historic value. And I saw it and I reached out to uh, the president of like the local neighborhood enterprise. And I was like, what can we do to rebuild this community? Because I saw the value in it, but I also saw like the future that if we didn't do it, who was going to come in and swoop it up? Um, I didn't get a response, but I'm I'm on the same wavelength as Jay-Z. Like we should be buying these properties that are now going for like a million dollars when 20 years ago they were going for like maybe 25,000. Like seriously, I'm, I don't like, we have to have real estate if we are ever going to build wealth in our communities. And also, when you think about potentially African-Americans rebuilding or gentrifying, I think he was just, you know, trying to be, you know, cool. I think he was just using gentrify as like a throwaway term. I don't think he actually meant like the negative connotation behind it. But if we African-Americans could go into our communities, actually build the the resources and the the stores or whatever that we know that we need instead of, you know, building a whole foods or, you know, things that really will potentially displace us. I don't think anything is wrong with it, but that's just me. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I the the actions of Jay-Z and Beyonce have nothing have been nothing but, you know, empowering and giving back and growing our own. And I think that's the way he meant he meant it. Um, I think some of the blowback, too, was um, from his contribution to, you know, Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Um, and what that has done was like exponentially raise property value, where there's also some research is now talking about like hyper gentrification where like the super wealthy rich have now moved in and are pushing out the middle class. But I think that's something he didn't think was going to happen. I think he saw it as I'm putting something in Brooklyn where they can, you know, bring businesses and help them grow and boost the economy. Um, but then sometimes you just can't plan for that. So there was a lot of blowback with like, yo, Jay-Z, you, you, you put the Barclays Center in there. Look what it's doing to, to our neighborhoods. But I mean, we've had these conversations before when we talked to, um, you know, Professor uh, Lance Freeman on our episode, I think it was episode 12 called There Goes the Hood, uh, when we talked about gentrification. And if you look at the definition of gentrification, it's the process of renovating and improving a house or district so that it conforms to middle class tastes. Um, so, again, sometimes I think we do have like this negative taste 
to gen- the gentrification because of how we've seen it happen historically in c- current current day. Um, but I don't think um, it's always a race thing. And by gentrify your own hood means, yeah, let's renovate it. Let's improve our ho- housing. Let's improve our districts so that we have better resources for our own. Not that we want to push anybody out, but at, in a way that everybody wins. I think that's the way he meant he meant it. But, you know, it was just an interesting conversation that people were having back and forth, like, should we gentrify? Should we gentrify? And I think a lot of it was just kind of a misunderstanding of what gentrification actually means. And it's not always a negative thing. Mm-hmm. But for us, it, for us, I can see why people would take it that way for black mm-hmm. folks. <laughs> One thing I will say is when you see your neighborhood gentrifying, don't sell. You are getting pennies. Take out if if it is at all possible. Use those increased property values and the increased equity that you now have to take out a a second mortgage and try to renovate. You know what I'm saying? If that is possible, you know, do something because we got to stop selling. That's the issue. Mm Yeah, and it's hard because again, people like to give us a check. So what they'll come in, they'll do, and they'll, you know, people knock on your door like, "Hey, we want to sell your, uh, purchase your property right now for three times the amount." I mean, that's you know, if you're living that, you're like, "Wow, that's a lot of money." You know, they're gonna give it to me right now with cash. I'm gonna take that and run with it. But I think you always got to know, like, whatever they're offering you means they're gonna make a lot more yeah. from that. You know, so just don't just don't take that offer, even though it seems lucrative. They're they're paying you that much for a reason because they know they're about to make a lot more. So if you hold on to that property yourself, you're going to be the one making that lot more, except instead of them. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was an interesting thing. Um, another thing that has been on uh, around the news has been, you know, one is because Burger King has now going to push these impossible burgers out. Have you heard of these? Yes, I have. Yeah. So for those of you not familiar, Possible Burgers are kind of like this uh, plant based burger in a way that's very um, similar and looks very similar to what you have. if You had a beef burger. And so uh, Burger King did a test run in a few places. It was successful. Now they're going to put it everywhere within the next year. It'll be at every Burger King where you're not where you're not having Impossible Burger. Um, there's other things like Beyond Beyond Burgers. I think that's from Impossible. I'm not sure. You know, I, I've. I've eaten them every once in a while and they're not bad. Um, They do have a lot of meaty texture and stuff like that. Um, But one thing I want to highlight too, because they're said to be now, because they're going public, Impossible Burgers. And so they're said to be valued at $1.4 billion already just entering the game. Um, But what I want to make clear is that a lot of people are assuming just because it's plant-based that it is a healthy option. Um, just because something is plant-based does not mean it's healthy. Uh, what a lot of critique I've been seeing, and I mean, I already knew this for me and I never, I've ate it a couple of times and, you know, my wife who's a food scientist is always looking at nutrition facts and anything like that. And one of the first times we ate it, she looked at the nutritional facts. It was like, wow, look at all the fat in these burgers, <laughs> you know, and almost just as much fat in these burgers as you would have in a regular uh, beef burger, maybe like one or two grams less. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to, Throw that information out there for everybody that just because it is a plant-based burger, don't start going ham and thinking that it's a healthier option, especially if you're talking about like high cholesterol and all this other kind of stuff, blood pressure, all those things. Um, it's still a very fatty piece of, uh, fat, still a very fatty burger, even though it's plant-based. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just like, what did y'all do to get it to have a meaty texture? Like, it, that means it must be like very processed as well. So it's just like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, we still don't even know all yet the in-game, how, you know, the recipe and how they do it all. I think a lot of it with these type of burgers use things like beets and stuff like that. For some reason, it seems to hold the texture 
very well, but I'm sure you sure there's other things that are doing they're doing um, that they've patented this and now going public. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to throw that caveat there. Be careful, y'all, just because it's plant based does not mean it's healthy. So don't start just going to Burger King every day, <laughs> killing these impossible burgers. Um, and um, I guess one other thing that happened too was uh, Facebook recently started banning people. Um, from uh, the services, and one of the people was Louis Farrakhan, which mm-hmm. has a lot of controversy surrounding that. Uh, for you know, they've been banning people who they said it promote division or hate speech, etc. Um, and so a lot of people are you know widely upset that they banned Louis Farrakhan from uh, their platform and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so you know, I guess my thoughts on it is the fact that I think you know it's starting to get when we start thinking about social media, even we're seeing things like Instagram and stuff, they're going to like take away likes. Um, uh, eventually I think that's something they're going to do where you can't only you can see the likes and nobody else can see the, how many likes you have yeah. and all this other kind of stuff. Um, so it's getting very interesting what we're starting to see with social media, especially Facebook is owned, uh, Instagram is owned by Facebook and stuff like that. So you're going to see a lot of similarities as, but as far as, you know, idea of censorship, um, you know, are, should they be allowed to do this? I understand the intent behind it because there were definitely people on that list who were like, yeah, I'm not mad that they should be taken off, um, uh, who say a lot of racist and crazy and hateful things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it is bordering that line, you know, which makes America separate from other countries is that we do, even though we may not like it, we do have the right to say these things. And that, and now Facebook is kind of taking that away, uh, which they can because, you know, they it is their you know, they own it as their property, but I think you start to draw because then it's like, what parameters do you use to pull people from and not pull people from, et cetera? Mm-hmm. It's kind of tricky. I I agree uh, about this being like a potential slippery slope to just kind of targeting everyone. Like I actually personally know someone on Facebook for whatever reason, like they they wouldn't even post anything crazy. It would just be news articles that have like a a black slant or like, you know, political content. But like very rarely did they add any extra, you know, commentary to it. And it would be from like credible sources. And his page was just getting reported all of the time. And it's just kind of like some of his posts were taken down and they weren't controversial at all. So it's like, I understand that we want to have this response to the Mueller report and the Russia investigation, but mm, we just got to be careful. Got to be careful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we do. So this is something just to keep our eyes on y'all and to see what's going on with this and and how things are going to be, um, you know, if this grows and, and who else they start to take off. Cause, cause yeah, what is considered hate speech, you know, um, it's going to be a, a interesting question so they're gonna have to define these things and there's a slippery slope so we'll see how they they, uh it goes from there um other than that you know the last story which is uh, you know a sad sad story but it kind of leads us to our topic today is has the passing of john singleton Mm. uh, which recently happened too within this past a few days um which you know a lot of you know has saddened a lot of people because because of what he has done for the culture as far as being in film and media. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of his movies are classics. Mm-hmm. Most of them are classics. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what, what's, what, what's one of your, what's your favorite, you know, uh, John Singleton movies? Um, so it would have to be between 
Boys in the Hood or Poetic Justice. Like I grew up like watching those, but also Baby Boy. I okay, Baby Boy was my junk. I won't lie. I can still quote that movie. Jody, yeah. my Jody. Because I actually knew somebody yeah. named Jody, so it made it. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Boy, boys in the Hood. Yeah. Um, Poetic Justice is up there. I, I really like Four Brothers. That yeah. was one of my favorites. Um, but of course, Baby Boy is just a, a classic. But he's done other movies where people love, like Higher Learning and Rosewood. Oh, my God. Shaft. Um Hustle and flow, like <laughs> higher learning and Rosewood were also like growing up. Like I would just watch those movies like on repeat all the time. So actually, yeah, like John Singleton was like a huge part of my my childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's what he said. And then even even, you know, the movie I watch, uh, not the movie, the shows I watch right now, which I suggest you all check out, comes on FX called Snowfall. Mm. You know, he directed, executive produced and uh, wrote for this show as well. It's coming on third season starting in July. Um, but it's a super dope show. Definitely one of my favorite shows out right now. And I'm, I don't know if they're going to continue it after the season or not, but it's really it's a really good show. Um so yeah, John Singleton, you know, rest in peace. Uh, you know, he's inspired a lot of other filmmakers and directors of color to keep doing doing what they're doing. Um, so, so yeah, rest in peace, John. Yes, Singleton. rest in peace. And go check out those movies if y'all haven't seen any of them. They are classic. <laughs> a lot of his <laughs> yeah. movies are classics. They really yeah. are. Yeah, especially I mean, Hustle and Flow. For I, I'm just that movie just always. Funny. Yeah, it was it was funny. I didn't take that movie seriously, but it was funny. Actually. I didn't even. Kind of hard out here for yeah. him. Uh, wasn't that wait? Um, was that was that? I know Terrence. Was it who won the cab? Was it for Three Six Mafia? Yeah, it was Three Six Mafia that won it for the right. for the song. Okay. I like of all the songs. Okay. I mean, I like the song, but of all the songs that could have won like the award, like. Sometimes I don't get media and awards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'd be so random, so especially when it comes to like black stuff. To black like, stuff. Like black like black people be like, why though? Like <laughs> <laughs> Saw it out here for a pimp. Yes, yes. That's what we've been waiting for. <laughs> like, oh my god. Okay, all right. All right. All right. <laughs> Cause that's how I feel. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I felt the same way. Uh, but shout out to John Singleton. So, it, so, um, and like I said, this leads us into our discussion with our um, interview today with um, Adrian Sebro, who is a candidate and PhD in cinema and media studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. Yeah. Um, so, this was a really great conversation because a lot of his work and his research focuses on black television and film. Um, and so, you know, Daphne and I always, you know, try to have our film breakdowns every once in a while. Uh, but, you know, we, sometimes we don't know what we're talking about. We just be fans and consumers, but it's good to have somebody on here that's an actual, you know, is, is gaining their expertise in this area and doing their research and getting their PhD in this very field. Um, so it's only fitting to, you know, talk about this today uh, with black film on the rise and, and black representation on the rise and getting his expertise on it. You know, and we mainly talk about his work is focusing on black sitcoms in the 70s and how, it you know, they were produced then and, and the rep politics of representation during that time period and how it kind of, you know, also stems into more modern day um, applications of film, of black film and production we see today. Yeah. All right. So uh, without further ado, you ready to get into it, Dad? Ready. I will catch up with y'all afterwards then. 
Over the past decade, we've witnessed huge strides in the representation of African Americans in television and film. With the success of movies and shows such as Black Panther, Us, Blackish, and Insecure, some might even argue that we are in the midst of a Black media renaissance. Today, we discuss the history and current state of Black television and media with Adrian Sebro, a PhD candidate in cinema and media studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. Specifically, we discuss his research on representation in Black sitcoms of the 1970s, activism among Black comedic actors, how the politics of representation in Black media has changed over time, and the state of Black film and television. Welcome, Adrian Sebro. I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I'm just uh, really excited to get to talk to you all today. Nah, yeah, we're excited. Yeah, to we're excited you. too. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so, you know, the first question before we get into the nitty gritty of what you do and what you research, which we're really interested in talking to you about, uh, the first question we'd like to ask our guests is just can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Introduce yourself to the audience and, and let us know who you are. Oh, sure, no problem. Um, again, like I said, my name is Adrian Sebro, I'm a PhD candidate at UCLA Cinema Media Studies. Um, I'm from originally from San Diego, California. I went to uh, undergraduate at UCLA. Um, actually grad, uh, got my bachelor's degree in uh, women's studies there and minor in film and television. Uh, went on to Columbia for my master's in African-American studies and um, ended up back on the other coast, back at UCLA. Uh, right now I work on my PhD in cinema media studies and I'm on this PhD candidate track and I am um, looking to submit my disc uh, at the, uh, in April, actually. So hopefully looking for a, uh, a spring graduation. Mm, nice. So yeah, you're right in the midst yeah. of it all, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Process. I'm on that. I'm on that everyday writing tip and getting up and writing. And um, right now, kind of just, you know, in the market as well, too. So dealing with all that mess and uh, really just trying to, you know, savor the moment where it's at. But it's been a long road. Um, no breaks in uh, academia and um I'm tired, but you know, definitely it's going to be worth the work. I know that. <laughs> so yeah, writing and and being on the market at the same time—that's a monster, man. Yes, sir. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But you know, anything worth having, you know, it's going to come, come with some struggle. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. Adrian, I just want to tell you, I feel you, bro. Like I feel <laughs> you so much right now. I'm in the data collection stages. Oh yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. just yesterday, I posted uh, a Facebook. Um, meme that was like every day I'm hustling I'm trying to get this dissertation done because I'm that's I'm nice. tired I'm tired and my point right now too is like you know in this last port I'm on my last chapter right now trying to get together and I have a lot of the stuff but I still have some archive business and stuff to set up so trying to manage that with more writing and stuff too you know it's, it's that time where everything kind of comes like comes at you fast but it's I'm realizing now just got to dedicate time to it every day, regardless, mm-hmm. you know, wake up early. Even if I have plans for the day, wake up two, three hours earlier and start writing so I can get my plans going. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about having a, a process. And I'm realizing as I go on, like, you know, whether it be writing groups, someone checking in on you, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, you got to have a process that gets you through it. Um, and, you know, I'm like the only person in my friend group, you know, going through the PhD route. So no one ever understands, you know, when I say, no, I'm, I'm working right now when it's, you know, 9 p.m. on a, on a Wednesday and I can't go out, you know, random things like that. And um, it, it is difficult, but finding your community and has been has been great for me as of late, you know, and um, I'm actually currently 
in uh, Philadelphia as well uh, on a dissertation fellowship at UPenn. So that definitely has helped out with my process too, to be able to solely focus on writing. And um, that's definitely been helping out for sure. Nice. Oh, congratulations on that. You're doing it. Thank you. you. Yeah, trying to get through. (laughs) So how did you become interested in cinema and media studies? Well, yeah, uh, for myself, I grew up uh, in foster care for a great portion of my life. And um, for me, I kind of, school has always been like the kind of one thing that was consistent. And um, also with that, it was like, you know, watching TV, which, you know, and for me, I learned a lot about like black culture, history and life from television shows and specifically like uh, sitcoms. Um, So for me, you know, you know, uh, my dad, uh, it's funny because I was like 10 years old and, you know, he's, my dad's an immigrant from Trinidad and he one day gave me like a DVD, like, oh, I watched this show when I wanted to learn about America. And it was um, the show Sanford and Son, which uh, came in like 1972 is when it mm-hmm. premiered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I'm 10. I don't know what this is at all, but um, watching it, you know, saw the comedy and then I started watching it kind of like all the time and I got older and realizing some of the things that referencing about like black history, you know, poverty, social justice. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, media is a space of learning as well. You know, it's a space of pedagogy and really to study a medium that kind of mediates our interaction with the world and other people. Um, people talk about media every day, you know, I mean, now it's even the definition of media now it, it further expands all like every year, something's different, but particularly with, television as a form of media it's also a form of politics and um i think every television show represents the political moment it's in and for me to be able to study that and uh, realize that's constantly evolving i want to be part of something that continuously changes and uh, redefines itself um but really i you know i can't lie i love watching black tv shows and black movies so um mm-hmm. to be able to do that write about it um and talk about it and teach about it is um it's always been enjoyable to me and um to realize the strives in which, you know, those individuals in these in these spaces, like whether it be actors, producers, writers, they had to go through, and um, it's always been inspiring to me to uh, look at, you know, the spaces where they had to contend with so many things against them um, in order to kind of portray images of black community and society. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, what uh, just before we even get to some more of the questions, what do you think? Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite shows? Some of the um, things you love to watch since you love to watch them. Well, I mean, I do have a bias for sitcoms, but um, so I'll start there. You know, uh, I would say uh, Martin is my favorite sitcom okay. of all yeah. time, probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned Sanford and Son, Good Times. Uh, I do love, you know, I think the 90s era in general, of probably one of the greatest eras of black television, concentrated black television, um, period. Um, you know, Fresh Prince and, you know, living single girlfriends everything like that it's really it was a space where i think finally black people were able to kind of give voice um have voice and write for themselves and kind of speak a language that is um understandable to us in various urban communities as well versus you know you know and and i i love i love shows of the 70s as well but i think the 90s is a space where you know that actual writing credits, production credits, and like a certain, you know, actual creative control was given um, to, to more Blacks in the media. And um, I would say I currently, you know, I love shows like Blackish, uh, you know, before canceled Carmichael show, mm. you know, uh, yeah, great show, talked a lot about um, very important current events. And, you know, 
but also too with like with with film you know i have a very huge love for you know black cinema in general as well too you know uh of course you know some of lot spike lee hits you know crooklyn you know i really enjoy the old you know gangster movies like the warriors things like that and so i really kind of any films talking about a you know kind of whether it be coming of age urban plight or you know just really living in uh, various urban environments like definitely top 10 also is like i think people overlook the critical dialogue they're having in these films as like you know although i'm aware you know tv and cinema is all it's all you know it's, it's all about money it's all you know uh it's all a, a system of you know generating making money but a lot of these films and uh and tv shows people kind of just um write off really have a lot of you know deeper messages and meanings in the shows and that's why for me i think that's also why i study these shows because although i am aware of their you know markability and like you know they're for the means of making money a lot of these shows are telling a lot of uh deep and personal um accounts of cell issues and where i want to help shed light on those things um and that's kind of where I am with, you know, analyzing these various uh, black films and television shows. Um, I know you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but sometimes I like to take a step back just to make sure yeah. our listeners understand uh, some of the terminology that we may be using in this interview. Oh, course, and so one of, of the things you talk about is uh, politics of representation. Um, yes. So what does that mean? What does that mean to the, our listeners who may not be in academic spaces or really not sure what that is? Can you explain it for them? So positive representation, um, and I think it really comes down to who was defining it, but I usually use that uh, Stuart Hall's theory of public representation, particularly regarding, um, so the structure would be institutions such as religion, uh, the state, and the economy, and factors such as uh, sex, gender, age, class, nationality, ethnicity, et cetera, that influence um, the opportunities that individuals have. So particularly, you know, when I study black sitcoms, that is public representation is, is, is seeped into all these um, into all these shows, particularly really any sitcom, black or white. But in these shows specifically, you know, you're dealing with the plight of of class, which is usually, especially in the '70s, a uh, lower social socioeconomic class. You're dealing with you know um, African Americans, and you're dealing with you know usually you know um, heterosexual groups as well too. So all these various factors kind of influence the opportunities that individuals have, and one one change uh, to one of these factors will change their opportunities either greater or less. But really when it comes to um, these shows, particularly when it comes to African-Americans, poor, urban environments, um, uh, male, that is really what's uh, the majority of the, the how we see the shows in the 70s that I study. And um, those, those positive representation have a specific impact on the influences and opportunities of the individual in these specific shows. Mm, thanks for that. Um, really helpful. Um, so you've talked a little bit about the shows that you like, and they may overlap with the shows that you're studying, but, you know, can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about your research? Like, what specific shows are you focusing on? Like, are there any recognizable shows that our audience oh, might know yeah. about? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I particularly study... Um, a production company called Tandem Productions, right? And um, they are really the the television company that ruled sitcoms in the 1970s. You know, they started with All in the Family, um, which is a sitcom in 1971 about, you know, uh, Archie Bunker's uh, white man living in Queens with his family. And from there, 
many of the shows spin off of one another. So I particularly study the black sitcom of Tandem Productions and how the black actors and black writers and black producers of the shows contend with the white executives at these stations and how they're and really how they claim their agency and resilience through these shows and um, through their politics that they portray in the shows, particularly the shows I study through tandem of black sitcoms are Stanford and Son, which was nineteen seventy-two, Good Times, nineteen seventy-four, and The Jeffersons, nineteen seventy-five. So these three shows and how the black actors and writers uh, contend with the um, politics at play at Tandem Productions as a whole, which is you know ran by two white men, and how these shows about you know historically historic shows about black culture and black identity how these two white men are, uh, most people talk about these shows, they are, you know, heralded from uh, the white uh, the creation of these two white individuals and never really from the perspective of the black actors and writers who are creating these images that we see. So that's what I'm doing with my work. Mm. Nice. So um, it's good that we'll catch you, like, right in the midst of it, of your other writing. So what... Um, what are some of the things you've been finding with your research, some of the interesting things? Oh, um, so really, thankfully, there's some archives I've been finding is that, um, you know, which I did know there were a lot of contentions with some actors and some shows uh, with the production team, but I'm actually finding that uh, really a, a lot of these actors, specifically in um, Sanford and Sun and Good Times, they put their careers on the line uh, for their roles, really, and to a point that um, we look now at, like, the way certain actors are able to, you know, advocate for their, for uh, certain pay, uh, pay wage and um, certain, um, you know, production credits in their, in their shows. Uh, that's not a new thing. And I think I figured out that actually started in the early seventies with actors like Red Fox, um, of Stanford and Son, who, you know, walked out on the show um, for about five episodes because he wasn't paid as much as uh, the white actor, Carol O'Connor and all in the family. And realizing that he was the highest grossing show on NBC, he used his agency to really walk out of the show and, and, and force them to pay him uh, equal wage. And also looking at um, Esther Roll uh, of Good Times, uh, the mother of Florida Evans, who put the mother of Florida Evans. She too was really, through my, through my research, realizing that she was the first black woman to really advocate for one, her salary, um, and advocate for the fact that they actually wrote the show about for her and they wrote it without a father figure in the show, and um, John Amos's character, um, James Evans. And through uh, many consultations and conversations and arguments, she had to fight for a father figure to be on the show because, um, and historically, they weren't, you know, they weren't okay with having a father figure because they they they, they uh, felt as though a complete family of a father and mother in a black, um, you know, project was unbelievable. So she took it upon herself to fight for that role or said she wouldn't take the role if there wasn't a black father figure and that's how they hired John Amos. So what I'm learning particularly from these, and this is from contracts with the, with the lawyers, the producers, and a lot of various you know interviews and a lot of uh, black magazines like Ebony and Jet, things like that, is that these actors really put their careers on the line for the black image and realizing that, you know, seeing um, that they had a they had a ability to ability as well as they felt a duty to reclaim the black image um, for what it has been in the past um, and, and do right by it and you know that means you know hiring black writers you know they 
they often, you know, argued against the scripts that these white writers wrote for them because, you know, it didn't sound like what black people would do. So um, they really put themselves on the line a lot, and I think that that's part of history that isn't really talked about. And I think we see it a lot now with people who walk out of their shows, like Dave Chappelle, George Carl Carmichael, who these white executives, you know, they kind of, at the end of the day, they control the narrative of how these shows are portrayed on television. And, you know, these individuals, they walk out. And I think uh, these things ha happened a long time ago, but they're not really chronicled and talked about um, and how they affect the actors and their agents that they have today. And I think that this 70s moment um, started or catalyzed uh, a lot of that that we see today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, I, that, so when you talk about good times, I cannot imagine that show without John Amos on it. Like, exactly. Yes. And I actually found it interesting that toward the end of the sitcom, he actually does disappear. I guess the original, yeah. you know, producers or the original creators got their ultimate wish because he disappeared. Was it like the last one or two seasons? Uh, no, no, no. Actually, um, so there's uh, six seasons in the show. He he was written off uh, season three, actually. And what happened was that, uh, you know, uh, uh, he constantly had an issue with the way the character J.J., um, played by Jimmy Walker, you know, uh, was being written in the show as kind of like this clownish, kind of buffoonish character, which he started the show as, you know, aspiring, you know, um, charismatic artist in the, in the show as a character, but they started writing him and kind of like as a kind of a joke in every episode. John Amos, the character, the character who plays the father, actually um, consistently uh, argued with um, people at Canon Productions about changing this, this, this role, uh, writing in a more a, a better role for uh, for that character that you know kind of sees him outside of his kind of you know as he used the term buffoonish act and so he too walked off walked off the stage came late to, to the screenings came late to uh, table reads uh, and was suspended for a, a few episodes and mm. he came back and uh, there was a point in which they were uh, and it was quote like he was a quote a difficult person to work with and um, Norman Lear who was uh, the founder of, uh, of, of Tandem Production called him the next uh, before season four saying you know you got another season but you won't be returning and um, then they successfully wrote him off of the show saying that you know he died in the car crash something like that and the show went on for three more seasons and I would and I would argue those are the, the three worst seasons of the show but uh, they definitely you know they were able to still rule on with about three seasons and it's become clear that they didn't want him there from the start right mm -hmm. and um uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, many people can't imagine the show without him because it's such a dynamic force. And he, that's really the first, if you want to use the term, nuclear complete family, black family on television. So um, having that and seeing that was revolutionary. And to write someone off is such a pivotal part of that. You know, uh, you see in the ratings, it went down dramatically. First, first three seasons, the show was in the top five of the Nielsen ratings. And once he was written off, it very very slowly just kind of went off to the map yeah. and um so yeah and, and and he felt that you know everything to this day i read an article about him that he did uh an interview about i think 2016 he still feels justified in what he did and why he did it and that just kind of proved further the the actual activism and uh, um resilience that they had to uh display at, at, at this um majority white space um to reclaim their images and um they really had to sacrifice their jobs at times for it. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one very clear example. 
Mm-hmm. I actually didn't realize he was offered that many seasons, but I do agree that the show yeah. uh, declined. How did mm-hmm. you? Um, so you've you've given us a lot of examples of the activism um, and yeah. the sacrifices that some of these actors made to make sure that you know the portrayals of black people in the media, you know, was accurate and you know actually representative. How do you, as a researcher, I guess, how do you? gather evidence you know around these things like how did you get access like what what type of data are you looking at to um provide insight into this yeah for this uh type of research specifically i look at everything so of course i watch the shows i think that's you know uh, obviously you can't do these things without watching the show so i've Mm -hmm. you know seen the lion's share of all of stanford and good times and the jeffersons you know um i do that mainly because um as an as, as a viewer, especially now where you know I can like simply watch the show right one after the other rather than have to wait the next week for something, I can see over time how the show changes, and and you know you can tell when the writing changes, uh, how the actors the acting changes, how the comedy changes, where it fluctuates, and kind of how they deal with you know um, temporal uh, temporal parts at the time. You know these shows deal with you know. Uh, Race, race, class, politics—you know, local government—all um, these things in, in comedic ways. And so I have to watch the show to know that, and I have to watch the show to be able to talk about, all right, you know, this character did this in this show. And but what I also do is uh, I look at uh, trade journals, particularly um, TV Guide, and especially in the '70s where there's only three channels at the time, and TV Guide was like the bible to figure out kind of how are you planning your evening. And this is called the network era, where, you know, uh, there's only three channels, ABC, CBS, and NBC, you know, and people have, like, you know, kind of a much more limited power of choice than we have now. And so what made them want to watch these black shows, you know, versus other shows in this time period? Um, so I have to look at, you know, Nielsen ratings of these shows. Where were they? You know, how were they ranked? And how are they popular? And realizing why they're popular. I had to look at, you know, the said trade journals, which is TV Guide, uh, Ebony, um, Jet, to get the perspective of a black community watching these shows. Um, and I would also look at Time, you know, which is kind of more centered to like the, the U.S. at large, particularly, you know, a very kind of tame, not really critical of black television shows, to kind of all look at how their communities write about and talk about these shows. Also, I have to look at... Um, how these shows were, how these shows were written about in other in other uh, literary works, you know, um, and throughout the field of cinema media studies, you know, does anyone else talk about these shows? And you actually be surprised; these shows are very scantily discussed in in in, in uh, media and, t- and studies. So particularly, most folks kind of focus on, you know, Cosby Show in the '80s as this revolutionary act, and um, the shows of the '90s. But the '70s, particularly, is a space that you know definitely needs more more discussion because that's really where the boom of black TV shows started. And so uh, through like a literary analysis or, you know, creating an you know, answer to bibliography, I have to look at uh, the ways in which these seven shows we talked about, how and why kind of what's missing from those. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, when I have uh, access to these um, archives, like getting access through, you know, being in Los Angeles, you know, it's kind of the TV, you know, mecca of everything where a lot of archives are, Actually, you know, um, found a uh, found a connect through a through a 
John I used to work with who was a producer, he had a friend who knew Norman Lear, actually Norman Lear was still alive, created Tenet Productions. He's about 95 years old now, but he still works, he still produces. And he actually has an, um, an archive out here in Los Angeles and I was able to, you know, through, I think, you know, having a, a university tied to your name, one such as UCLA kind of gives you access in a lot of different ways. Um, and I was able to access this archive and um, it's an archive of, you know, inter-office communications as far as, you know, with the production team executives as well as with actors, um, how, how the contacts are set up and various news articles and coverage of these shows from from like maybe LA Times to New York Times to like the Sarasota Times, you know, even how small these smaller state and, and city newspapers. I look at all these things to kind of create a pitch about, you know, not living in real time or not I wasn't alive during the time of the shows either. I have to place myself in the nineteen seventies. Um, like what is going on during this time in history? why are these shows so pivotal and why are people watching these shows and how those two communicate together like how um how the politics of this of this temporal moment coincide with what we see on on uh in sitcoms and from there i'm able to kind of make create a narrative about why these shows are being watched how they're being watched and kind of the impact of these shows um to society and how we actors had to really advocate for the community through these portrayals and off scenes um, through their, you know, uh, as, as, as their regular human selves. Um, you know, Esther Lowell constantly got berated for her, her, uh, for her activism and people were actually surprised, oh, like, people are, oh, you're so nice on, on screen as, you know, Florida Evans, but, you know, you, you seem such, a, such an activist outside of your role. So constantly having to kind of defend her role in her space whilst, you know, um, challenging it and challenging how people should view it. <clears throat> and I think other than those things, I also uh, look at actual the actual scripts of these shows, talk about the ways in which these actors, and I think it's a, a tradition of black acting through the Chitlin circuit and vaudeville, how actors, you know, uh, often kind of go off script and um, improvise, and I think that uh, especially in the comedians of the show, like you know, Red Fox, consistently went off script and improvised. And I think that's just a. I look at the way in which these things are written, and kind of realizing that when they, these aren't written, you know, by black writers, the actors have to force their own way to kind of get their black spin onto it. So uh, yes, yeah, so looking at the original scripts help with helps with that too. No, awesome. That's a, yeah, it's definitely um, a lot of work, but definitely much needed for sure. Talking yeah. about, um, and I know most of the work you're, you're doing right now, at least you're focusing on, is with work from the '70s. Like you said, it's kind of been overlooked yeah. over time. So, looking, you know, from that time period up until now, and I know you mentioned things like the Carmichael Show, Blackish, etc. You know, yeah. kind of this resurgence of black television and black media and black film. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any kind of major changes that you've noticed between the 70s uh, and now in today's kind of black media? Yeah, the largest change, um, honestly, is like kind of, speaking of television, the largest change is kind of what we define as television now. You know, like I can pull my phone out right now and watch TV, you know, with quotes, you know, TV. Or I can pull my laptop and watch it, you know. And, and you know, I think especially subscription on-demand services such as Netflix, Hulu, 
even Amazon really, you know, um, that gives folks a lot more spaces to create. And I think where in the seventies where the, um, those who had executive power, again, still to this day is mostly, mostly white, but you know, people have the power nowadays to be more in control of their production. Uh, people have the ability to freelance and not be tied down to any specific network. And my people, I mean black people specifically. And so I think that aids a larger difference in the way that we see television, the way that uh, black actors and writers and producers are able to um, be in that field. Um, specifically, you know, uh, I'll speak of like, you know, Kenya Barris of, you know, a blackish, you know, uh, having that that kind of title as a, you know, executive producer or writer, creator. Um, and, but he still has to contend with, you know, um, executives at ABC. And through those many fights, you know, that he's actually leaving ABC. And, you know, and how people now are able to like their, like themselves into the contract that, you know, if they're not there, the show isn't there. And I think that uh, there is more power now in, in one's ability to create and have ownership in that creation. But, however, I think still uh, the largest issue we have is the lack of black executives in these spaces. Mm. Um, the lack of like people who can understand the plight of you know uh, of the content of these shows. Of course, again, uh, I'll, I'll further state that you know there's no misunderstanding that television is a medium uh, created you know for money, television and cinema, excuse me. But however, you know it's also an art form, and and I think it's also a communication form. It's, it's how people define society and, and and how people you know understand current events. And I think that uh, having the ability to be in control of that is a huge power. It's a political power. And um, we need more people of color in general to be at that range of power. And I think that's one of the largest issues why we see shows, like I said earlier, like the Chappelle show and Carmichael show, shows that are, you know, making extreme numbers and, you know, but you have, thankfully you have certain people like Dave Chappelle and, and you know, Gerard Carmichael who, respect their art so much that, you know, the money, the money doesn't mean as much to them as far as much as that the art and impact they're trying to make. So when the executives want to have a certain stake in their art, they, you know, are willing to let it go. And um, I think that is a very, you know, a very powerful thing to to do that and still have be successful in your career, you know, when in the past, if you did that, you know, oftentimes your career was over. Mm-hmm. And I do want to speak specifically for, uh, one of the Good Times creators, Eric Monty, who was also the you know uh, writer of the movie Coolie High. Eric Monty, who was creator of Good Times, he um, unfortunately, I think to this day, is a is in a um, in a homeless shelter, but he's still right, right. And um, what happened with him is that in 1977, he sued Norman Lear and Cannon Productions, uh, pursuing his ideas and not getting the credit for it. And for particularly for good times, not getting paid how we should get paid because he always battled with the actors. He was constantly being demoted. Um, and apparently he had the idea for George Jefferson um, and was never credited for Jefferson. You know, they have, they gave him a million dollar settlement, ABC, CBS, and Norman Lear, and then gave him just a 1% stake into good times, which pales into the comparison of the money that was thrown in over time. And but him making that lawsuit against them and fighting for what his creation, he was blacklisted from Hollywood and he never looked again. 
And to this day, he's still riding and trying to get back on track. He's in the 70s now. So these things where you, you can actually go against Hollywood now where you, you think it's written to your contract and people have a larger understanding of how their work is being utilized. Um, that's one change from today, like, you know, where you can actually do freelance things and do a Netflix special like Dave Chappelle, or say, like HBO special like Gerard Carmichael did. And you can still, still be in control of your own work. Those are some of the things that these subscription on demand services offer to artists nowadays that weren't, weren't the same back then. And I think that, you know, there's more of a stake now to be able to be in control and, and of your own work, but I think there's still a lot of, a lot of ways to go as far as like, you know, who is control, who's control of what we see on media and how they utilize that control, because I would say it's a political power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, that was really insightful. And to hear, you know, about the creator of, you know, George Jefferson and, and the good, that's, that's really unfortunate. But I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, I'm not surprised because Hollywood seems yeah. very cutthroat. Yeah, and you see that in the music. You know, you see all these old films about you know old, these old bands back in the day, old groups who really they don't have you know not having the business or legal legal knowledge and really coming from nothing and getting money. You know, they don't understand what they're signing most of the times. You know, and that's the, you know sad thing that a lot of people have been cheated out of certain. The, you know, revenue that they, they deserve because of that. So I think that too, like now there's a, uh, there's more things set in place to protect um, actors, writers, producers, or, you know, more guilds and like, well, black people even have access to these, to these things is much different now. But, um, but then, you know, uh, risking or, you know, speaking out against, you know, speaking truth to power often, you know, leaves you high and dry as far as your career went. And I think that, um, so I'm trying to, we're, 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 with my work, I'm trying to make these, these stories of, you know, agency, you know, uh, uh, more well-known because and, and, they're really important as far as the history of television development and the way we see things now and the way we see um, the powers that be in media currently. Mm. So you've talked uh, you've talked about kind of what um, the industry could do better in terms of you know putting uh, you know people of color or black people in positions of power and authority. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to know in regard to like representation in front of the camera, like what yes. are we currently doing right and what could we do better? I think right now it is a good point right now. I think, the, uh, and I think I realized too, working on the study at UCLA called the Hollywood Diversity Project, where we um, really study every year, it's an annual study. Every year we look at the number of people of color um, in front of the camera, as well as, sorry, excuse me, people of color and women in front of the camera, as well as behind the camera. And um, the study, you know, gets paid from networks to do the study. This study really shows that, um, and I think it's no surprise, that the more diverse your cast and crew is, the more, you know, um, the more viewed your show is. And I think that just shows the, the power of representation in general. So now, you know, you look at shows now, there is always, you know, uh, they're moving towards a more diverse cast all around. Um, a lot of folks now are adopting um, colorblind casting um, specifically people like um, um, Shonda Rhimes where you know she 
she utilizes the show where she writes in the show that she's not particularly looking for a certain race for a particular role. And the colorblind casting, the practice of uh, casting without considering actors of ethnicity, skin color, body shape, sex, and or gender. And doing this leaves a lot of space open for how we interpret, you know, um, various actors and, and characters in shows because it leaves open, like, for interpretation of the of who the director or casting person is, how we're going to cast the show, and like, it makes it as diverse as possible. So that's one. I think very important change that we're seeing now, um, colorblind casting. And also, uh, as far as behind the camera, I think, excuse me, in front of the camera, I think that, um, well, in general, with having more people color behind the camera, you usually see more people color in front of the camera. And um, now with more people in color in the writing rooms or writing rooms that are more diverse in general, um, and people who and, and artists who make a concentrated effort to have volumes more diverse um, that only leads to yield some more um, the diversity in your audience base which means more audience base and which means you know, diversity in cast as well mm-hmm. Nice. you know I kind of want to ask you really quickly about some uh, just one or two of the more current uh, films I know yeah. you mentioned the Carmichael show and I love the Carmichael show and I, I watched that as well mm-hmm. but I feel like it did not get as much it wasn't as popular as I thought it, I felt like it should have been I feel like it was a really well written yeah. show it was great also had the feel of like a a 90 show right a 90 sitcom um, and all that kind yeah. of stuff but really touched on a lot of relevant and, and current topics um, and I know there may have been some you know uh, creative differences, I think, was ultimately what he he said was the issues and stuff like that. I remember they didn't want to play episode at one particular time. I think it was the episode thing with the shooting in the mall or something like that. Um, yeah, along those lines. But why do you think you know that show didn't just take off as 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 I wish it would have? Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and that mall episode actually that yeah that was kind of what drove it to kind of go off air because I think I believe an actual mass shooting happened in that day and they didn't want to scream the like due to sensitivity they didn't want to scream that episode the day actual mass shooting happened and I think that you know and Carl Michael felt that was a kind of a disservice because that's why it's important to show that this day you know mm-hmm. um, so I think it didn't take off mainly comes down to also who was in competition with because um, that's really all comes to, when it comes to networks and training and um really about what's in competition with and I think um, looking back in the 70s shows again you only had three options right now there's thousands of options and um, I would have to look at you know the days and the days of the week as well as time of the week in which these shows were uh, these shows were, uh, were, were were on screen and I think that also deals with like it's very political how people like you know if I say I want an 8pm show on a Friday you know, um, you gotta think about what people do Friday evenings now. People probably don't watch well, of the, the young twenty-somethings or thirties who watch Carmichael show. They're probably not watching television on Friday evenings. You know, yeah. or you gotta. That's really the one thing as far as you know um, where you place your show at in, in the lineup. That's one thing that can affect the ratings. But largely, I would say that show. Honestly, <laughs> I loved it, but I think that show might have been too real for a lot of folks you know mm-hmm. um, because Carmichael is a character because I, I watched the first season at first I didn't really like him as a character because yeah. he seemed very 
not very right in politics, but he seemed uh, more kind of middle, but towards the right. And, and, and for me, that was like, you don't really see black men at, in that role in a, in a comedy really ever. Yeah. But I realized that this character balanced him so well that yeah, that, that really made it that thing an important thing to see on television, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I was like, I gave it time. And, you know, and I think for me, you know, as a media person, I kind of gave that time because, you know, it's like, that's what I should do. And I know that sometimes shows take a while to tick up. And, but I think it really talked about so many pivotal and like current event issues that a lot of folks weren't ready to discuss. And I think even this episode where, where you know, his father, played by David Allen Greer, you know, uh, supports Trump from a yeah. rally. You know, <laughs> it's funny. It was a hilarious episode, but it really did go into a lot of like the reasons why some black people in the South support Trump. You know, and, and like things that people didn't want to hear and see, but very relevant. So I think it was a, a mixture of you know where it's placed in the lineup of, uh, of television shows as far as you know um, the daily lineup and how they how they're watched every week. But also, uh, a lot of folks weren't ready to handle some of the issues that, that he pressed. And um, I think if it had more traction than it was, it probably would have been a larger fight to keep it on. But Gerard Carmichael made the decision to take it off. And, you know, I completely understand the booth's decision as far as, like, him being in control of his work and um, really who's, control of, who's going to be in control of how it's streamed. But um, I think that even myself, I didn't really didn't watch it until it was on Netflix. So um, that's another thing, too. You gotta consider the fact that um, folks really don't watch cable that much anymore either. Because really, yeah, nothing about enough media has changed as far as ratings and things. Um, there really isn't a need, and it's weird to me, like, you know, I don't want the media police to get me on this, but there really isn't a need to particularly watch cable anymore because you can get it from so many different avenues. That's no difference in television. That also kind of affects the ratings, you know. Watching it on Netflix isn't the same as watching it on, um, I'm not sure what uh, what network it was on, but it's not the same. You don't get the same results as far as, like, you know, ratings and numbers. So that plays a factor as well. You know, um, Netflix pays a certain fee to uh, kind of have the rights to show these shows. But other than that, you know, um, that what's watched on Netflix doesn't really reflect how, they, how these shows are um, are watched uh, in the in the Nielsen rating as far as network. Mm. So that also affects a lot of these shows, especially, you know, looking at black sitcoms, you know. Uh, nowadays, if a black sitcom isn't, um, and I think, you know, I love I love Blackish, but drug, this comic show is extraordinarily different from Blackish, you know. Yeah. Um, and issues that discuss, but great, two great shows, but very different. And it's important you have these diversity of shows. Um, but very different, and I think that Blackish, in a lot of ways, is more accept is more respectable. You talk about respectability politics, in a matter of you know what kind of show kind of like you know it's for everybody, right? And again, it's still a very black show, but it is to a point that kind of you know it's kind of for everyone else to understand. And I think Carmichael show is even more of a kind of specifically in the vein, like you said, in the vein of like a '90s black sitcom in a way that's different from blackish. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to net, relying on network viewing, it'll of course get less views in a show like blackish. Mm-hmm. Nice. I I completely agree with that. I didn't watch Carmichael, but I, you know, had a, you know, good idea of what it was. But I'm gonna check it out on Netflix now that you guys have mentioned it. 
No, it's a really good show. And, yeah, check it uh, out. They got, about, they got to about three seasons, and um, yeah, and like a lot of folks came out of there. Like you know, um, Larell Howie came out of there. Tiffany Hatters was on there. Uh, the mm-hmm. Red Line, David Allen Greer. Mm-hmm. So it was a really all-star cast, really. Um, and I think as of right now, you know, uh, everyone in that show has been doing well since. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, so we've we've covered a lot, and it's been a very awesome conversation. Uh, you know, we had our you know our questions, but was there anything that we didn't discuss that you know you kind of want to add? You know, it could be about your work, it could be about you know media and TV in general. Um, the floor is yours, or the mic. I'll say the mic is yours. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, for me, really, I'm at this point now where I'm, you know, what's important to me about this work because I know, as you all know, when you're, you know, either uh, setting a dissertation up or creating a proposal for it, you always have to have the, uh, ask the question of, answer the question, excuse me, of why. Like, why is, is this research important in, you know, 2018, right? And for me, um, working on shows in the 70s, that was difficult at, at first, but over time I realized that, um, and I think what happened for me was it was the season two, I believe, finale of Blackish, where they went back in time. And this crazy this happened this time because this is literally the moment where I'm writing my dissertation proposal. Um, they went back in time and were Good Times characters. It was like mm-hmm. a, it was like a kind of a dream montage sequence. Mm-hmm. And that was a direct for me. That was like that was directly them mining at the cultural roots of like black sitcoms and television. So that was me like, oh, well, there you go. That's why this is relevant now because people like Kenya Burris and I think the actors of these shows as well, you know, uh, they realize and, and they're paying homage and tribute to the shows that came before them that, you know, uh, the struggles that these actors of these shows went through, um, you know, to even have a black producer, black writers, and, you know, and, and uh, to kill the charts the way they do, it's kind of paying homage to them in, in sort of ways. And for me, that made me realize, think back that, wow, uh, all these shows catalyze the shows that we see now. And they're all, a, like I said earlier, every show, every television show is a, you know, a, is a, uh, is a, rep- excuse me, is a, is a um, conversation of political moment. And we look at, you know, like I said, I study Stanford Center in the Dexter, my dissertation, specifically talks about, you know, working class, and working class families and, and you know, poor families and then you get to the Jeffersons, the families working class but moves on up, you know. And that begat, you know, different shows and Cosby show and, and all the shows later on where like, you know, a rich black family wasn't like a it wasn't like a surprise anymore. Right. So it made me really look back and look at what catalyzed this, these um, shows we see now and, and that was the root of it, those nineteen seventy shows that Really, um, thinking back, like I think try to place myself in the time of actors, like it's kind of a scary thing to allow themselves the, the brunt of the entire black community on them, really. And, and so that's why they fought so hard to uh, do right by these images. And I think that um, that little dream montage in Blackish really was like a was, was paying homage to these things. And for me, that really kind of like kind of how I'm gonna end my this and talking about the fact that really these tropes of these shows and really even like sitcoms taking um, a stand, a social stance against various issues or addressing certain issues uh, on screen that was starting the '70s as well, you know. Um, so the way things shows are done now, 
they completely kind of recreated and rewrote the, the sitcom map. And I think that these, these connections need to be made more often. And um, so I had always wanted to start this in the 90s, but I realized there's much more work to be done in the 70s. And, you know, the 90s will be that can, that can be the next project I'm going to do, right? And um, I really wanted to start there and realize over time that this is where it started and just how it changed over time. And, like, you know, hopefully one day I can kind of bring them all in one large, large timeline together. But, yeah, I, I think it's always important. And I think anything we do is to kind of, you know, uh, mine that cultural roots that catalyze what we're studying now and really, really take a, pick it apart and look at, you know, what were the various things that look deeper in, than the, than the you know, just the, the episodes, like look into the writing, look into who's, who's the set director, all these things, and like, you know, how are they decided by their attire, how are they decided to speak, everything like that, because that really creates the world in which many people uh, determine what black life is. And, you know, I read in a study where folks, white people of, of the South, actually, you know, the, the first time, looking at the Samson uh, and the Jefferson, excuse me, and this time, the first time seeing a black family, period, um, seeing it on television. So looking at these families, that's what they thought black people were and all, and all the, and that's how they all emulated. And um, to have that weight on your shoulder, you know, uh, and like these are, I consider these people our ancestors, you know, to have the weight on the shoulder as the, the black image, it's, it's pretty scary. You know? And it's a tough, it's a tough thing to have to, to carry, but they did it. And um, I think they did it in a beautiful way. So I think it's always important for me to look back at, at the ancestral roots of these things. And um, the TV is just much more than, um, much more than a commercial enterprise to me. It's a, it is a culture, it's a way of life, and it's a way of communication and how people understand the world. Mm -hmm. No, I, I definitely agree. And I think you're definitely on the sum, and, and the work you're doing is very important because I think a lot of us don't really follow, understand, and draw the historical connections to the what we're seeing now, even though it's a reemergence of yeah. black media and stuff. You know, um, people paved the way for these new entertainers, for the actors, for the directors, the writers, whoever. Um, and it's now it's great that we're seeing the, them reap the benefits and the fruit of what those people, those seeds that were planted in the 70s and around that time. So, so yeah, it's really interesting exactly. work that you do, man. Um, but this has been a great conversation, you know. Uh, really appreciate it. Daphne and I always have these conversations trying to sometimes on the podcast trying to deep dive in the shows yeah. being uh -huh. being fake experts but it's good to have an actual expert to come on and, <laughs> and break it down for us um and shed some light on on a lot of the things that we enjoy watching uh for sure yeah yeah i'm, I'm always down to talk tv and film and i think it's, i appreciate y'all you having the space to talk about you know you know black academia and you know really just where we place ourselves in every avenue of, you know, this academic life because, you know, talking to other people in the space, you know, I have, we have to, we're all a community, black academics, and, um, you know, a lot of times we, we struggle through, especially right now in this period of disc writing and stuff, and I'm tell you, you didn't do this already, but um, this period of disc writing where often things are still alone, you know, and uh, you feel like you're by yourself and, you know, but you have to find the community in it. And I think that spaces like this, this podcast, and, you know, just having conversations, you know, further refuels you and makes you realize how relevant your work is. And um, I think conversations like this need to continue to happen. 
sure. So thank you. We oh, agree. Um, where can uh, people find you? I know you know you're still finishing up and writing and focusing on that, but if people want to reach out to yeah. you, whether it be social media, websites, or inter- email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't wrote on it in a while because I've been around my disc, but uh, I do have a you know WordPress account called Screened Reflections. That's S C R W E N E D and Reflections, plural. Uh, the WordPress website, and really that's kind of just my take on all things, you know, TV, media, um, uh, of the present moment. And, um, so I do have to definitely, uh, talk about some stuff that's been going on as of late, but you know, this dish writing gets in the way of a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, but of course too, you know, I'm, uh, you know, if I can put my email out there too, I'm also open to, you know, emails and talks about different things as well too. Um, again, it's my, my name, Adrian, uh, uh, A-D-R-I-E-N uh, the letter P the letter S and the number 8 at UCLA.edu um, that's kind of like my official um, I guess business email as we would call it mm-hmm. and um, yeah that's, that's where I am now and, um, and and for me that's kind of like I, I, I'm always down to talk, talk film media and honestly too like maybe I, like, I said, like I said my master in African American studies I try to blend African American studies with film, media studies, and uh, history, sociology, all these things blend together now. And uh, as you all know, the greatest work now is, you know, it needs to be interdisciplinary. And I think that um, I'm definitely open to converse about anything about popular culture as well. Awesome. Awesome. We'll include those links in the description, as always. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, thank you. Okay, Take thanks. care. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. I'll take care. All right. You too. Yo, Dad, so what's up? How you feel about Adrian's interview? Good. He has me wanting to go like on a 90s and 70s sitcom binge after that conversation. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, growing up, like I used to spend a lot of time at my great aunt's house. And, you know, she was older. She was like 60s, 70s. And, you know, she would watch like the Nick at Night or like the pro or the TV channels that like showed old programs. So I watched the Jeffersons. I watched mm-hmm. Good Time. I watched Sanford and Son. Um, plus, of course, all the 90s TV shows. So it was like, uh, it was nostalgia, but it was also like a really informative conversation. Mm-hmm. No, for real, for real. It's pretty, again, I know we said this time and time again on this podcast. It's awesome to have people that are doing this work for people that are not familiar with academia because it's cool. It's like you get to watch your favorite shows and read and write and research and study it, you know, and that's all, and get a PhD in that work. Like, it's so cool when I hear these stories, man. Like, I hope that inspires many of you who may be teetering the line or wondering if you want to go into academia. Like, you can study what you want, whatever you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be this long, grueling thing of, you know, whatever, some boring stuff. It's like, yo, if you are interested in black television, well, you can write about that. <laughs> it's awesome. And spend, and spending your days binge watching it is actually you being productive. Yeah. Because I, awesome. I do it, but I'm not <laughs> writing about it. <laughs> and I do it too. It has nothing to do with my research. And I wish I could combine the two because that would be awesome. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching the shows and it's helping me still be a productive scholar. Like, 
You know, Adrian, you you you're real smart, man. You you're on to something. Real smart. Oh, you on to something. <laughs> I know he was listening to like some movies and some TV shows like I really love. Like I can still watch Martin yes. and laugh at it like I have not seen it ever before in my life. Like I love Martin. It's so funny. Yeah, that that is a a, a culture classic, I'll call it. Um and you know, I have this friend, I, I won't I won't have any name, I won't put his name out there, but it's from graduate school. And this boy loved Martin, man. <laughs> and he would always try to quiz me, ask me questions about episodes. I was like, bro, chill. <laughs> Even in his car, he would have like this DVD player. And when you go in his car, you put a DVD player and all it would be just episodes of Martin in his DVD in his car when he would take his long road trip. So he was like super addicted to Martin. And it was always funny. We saw a joke on him about that. <laughs> it's funny because Martin takes me back to like Purdue as well, because I will name names. I used to like crash Kadari house all the time. She'll be in her room sleep. I'll be in there watching Martin reruns. It, I, just, <laughs> I don't know. It takes me back to grad school. And now it's like not only a fond memory of the 90s, but like a fond memory of like a, a good time in graduate school. Mm-hmm. But speaking of 90s sitcoms, I have a quiz for you. Uh oh. Okay. Can you tell me what white popular 90s and early 2000s television show was modeled after Living Single? I'm going to go with, I think I know the answer to this. I'm going to go with um, Sex in the City. No. Oh, okay. Do you um, know that they took the idea of friends from Living Single? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was just kind of like they took the model of living single with having the guys and the girls together and they created friends, which, of you know, it was living single was popular, too. But like it, it really friends really blew up mm. like they were getting like a million per episode at a at a certain point. Mm, appropriate in our, our television. huh? Right. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, I'm happy I did a quiz question that you didn't actually know. (laughs) I was stumped. I was stumped. And that makes sense. I don't know why I said Sex in the City. But no, Um, that was a good, that was a good guess. mm -hmm. I was saying Girlfriends and Sex in the City. They remind me of each other. Yeah, Yeah, probably Girlfriends is what I mean. Girlfriends and Sex in the City would have been more of a compare better comparison mm-hmm. um but yeah i can see living single and friends i mean there's so many great shows in the 90s and then we had this long behind drought you know where it was like nothing really on for a while right and after the 90s and maybe like some of the 2000s it was like i can't what i can't really think of can you think of any i guess in the earlier 2000s maybe between 2000 2010 2012 think of any black no. sitcoms or shows that were really popping um no, the only thing I can think of, like when I was in college from like 2004 to 2008, the only two I can think of was The Game and uh, Girlfriends. Okay. But then after that, like you said, it was a drought and probably, yeah, around like 20, what, 14, mm-hmm. 2015, like that's when stuff got popping again. Well, I guess those, U- when, when did those UPN, was a UPN shows? What was it? Um, was it like uh, with Kyla Pratt? Um, oh yeah yeah that's- I think they had like a little section of shows for a brief moment um, yeah what was the name of that show did um I know what you're talking about because she was with Flex and Flex yeah. was her dad I can't mm-hmm. think of the name of it I did watch it but that I don't know there was something about it that wasn't quite <laughs> 
I, I don't know. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't put me in the game uh, in the mindset of like classic black yeah, show. I mean, yeah, I think they were kind of they were a little corny at times. I think you know it wasn't <laughs> the most. You know what? Ones. I think what might differentiate that is because I also felt like that was very much like a teen show, okay, as yeah. opposed to being like a. I don't know. Just like something that everybody in the black community yeah, would seek out. Yeah, that probably was more demographic specific than like these other shows we've been talking about. Um yeah. So there was I mean, but there wasn't there wasn't many, if if any. Um yeah. but now now there's like this resurgence, like we already talked about in the interview of all these shows. You know, I mean, we just asked him about a couple, but the Carmichael show is one that I really wanted to ask him about because it's like I t- I too started watching that. Um they put the first season, they had put the first season on Netflix. I was like, oh, what's this? And I checked it out. I'm like, oh, this show is this show is hilarious and very like much needed. But I never heard anybody talk about it at all. You know, and then I started watching it live from the second season on. Um, and it was just like really it, I, it, I don't know. Like I said, like when he named the cast, like, you know, Loretta Vine and, and Greer and and even Tiffany Haddish and Rel and, you know, Carmichael himself. It was a really good cast. Uh, yeah. And the show was really funny. But I'm like, man, I wish it would have got more more buzz. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. You know what I was about to say? He brought up a really important point about the need to have um, power and be in positions of power to ensure that what you see on the screen is actually representative of our experiences and what we would do and what we would say and how we would act. Um, and it, you know, when he was talking about the fight in particular with the creator who, you know, created George Jefferson and stuff like that, it reminded me of Married to Medicine. Did you hear about that battle between, uh, Mariah, the creator of the show and like the production company? No, I didn't. I didn't hear about it. I know, I know Kristen told me that she started it, right? Uh, the concept uh-huh. of the show. And then something happened, but I'm not familiar with actually the details of what happened. So I can't say all the details, and I don't know what the settlement was, but if people will notice, she was on the first two seasons, and then all of a sudden, like, she kind of got pushed in the background, kind of almost a friend of the show. Mm -hmm. She created this show. She was actually, they had invited her to be on Real Housewives of Atlanta, but Mm -hmm. she decided that she wanted to create her own show, and she shopped the show around to lots of different, like, production companies and television networks. You know, she eventually landed with Bravo and... And I think purveyors of pop or something like that. And it has been a struggle for her to get her credit. Like she had to like fight to finally get named as like creator and executive producer of the show. Mm. They didn't want to put that in. Um, I think her being missing from the show for like three seasons was partly related to the legal battle. Like, you know, she's kind of talked about it, but you know, you know, you have to, there's some like confidentiality things that I think she can't really go into it, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like not showing her life and not portraying her on the show as a way to like push her out. And they even started franchises of the show. And I think the way the contracts were written, she, I don't think she's paid for the franchises, although it still bears like the merit to medicine. Like they started one in Houston, which isn't uh, no longer like in production. They're about to do one in LA and I think the way the initial contract was written it did not include spinoffs um but 
it, it pisses me off because to see like a black woman from my hometown, nonetheless, mm-hmm. uh, she actually went to high school with my brother, uh, to see like a black woman from my hometown, like struggle to like, yeah, she wants to be in front of the camera, but she also wants her due, you know, credit behind the scenes. Um, and just to, that was one battle that, you know, just personally pissed me off. <laughs> Yeah, no. but you know, I hope she continues to fight, and I, you know, I hope she can get some of that spinoff money. Yeah, I mean, she's back on the show now because I know when I yeah. started when I started watching the show, she wasn't on there, and then when she started coming back on, I was like, oh, who's this? You know, Who this new character. And <laughs> yeah, Chris was like, nah, she she created this show. I'm like, what? You know what? She said she used to be on the first season or two, and then she she wasn't on, and she yeah. came back on. So I thought that was yeah pretty interesting and it sucks yeah if they're taking the credit or the name and now doing these spinoffs um yeah that's and she's not getting any kickback from that that's that's and this this thing reminds me of like even after the whole black panther phenomena and a lot of the cast and people were like like yes we finally made it you know people in, in general public but a lot of the cast and people were saying like nah even this is great but we need people in who, who sit in the, you know, behind the scenes in these positions of power. Because mm-hmm. they were essentially just like, listen, if if those guys who are sitting up there, all pre- predominantly these white men sitting up there, are like, oh, we don't want to do a sequel. Well, there's no sequel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's important that if we want, I guess, to keep these things, and that's one of the things I was thinking about when Adrian was speaking, is like, like, yes, this is a great time we're in. And what I'm thinking about, even in my mindset, is like, yo, I plan on having kids one day and I want my kids to experience this kind of media and representation. So it's like, yeah, the question is now, how do we get this to last and sustain over time? Mm-hmm. And I think you're exactly right. Like having people in power, people of color in these positions where it means something to them and they're going to always make sure that our faces are all in these spaces and on these screens. I agree. And that's why it's great. So you you have Shonda Rhimes, who now has like production deals with Netflix. I think Issa Rae just got some type of production deal to um, increase the number of like uh, black writers and and black talent, um, you know, in films and TV. So, yeah, she did it with uh, Columbia. Um, And it's a way to promote diverse writers. So, you know, I'm hoping that this isn't just a phase. I'm hoping that it's a movement that'll be sustained. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's awesome. And, you know, I'm kind of when I think about like this new wave of, uh, you know, black folks and stuff, I got to I give a little credit because they're all around. A lot of these new 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 people all around our ages, you know, from early to mid 30s, like the Issa Rays and the Carmichael's and the um, Gambino's and the Lena Waits and all the people who are doing a lot of great things. Um, you know, I'm like, OK, shout out to our generation. You yes, know, honey. The 80s babies. Doing yes. <laughs> 80s. We're about to, it's our time now. It is our time now. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So it's just fun watching that stuff. And I was like peeking at the age of folks. Oh, Okay, I see you. You know, <laughs> and to see a little, if you see them, they always hang out too. A lot of that little clique, they always had a little pictures on like social media of them having their little parties together or whatnot. They it. do, they do. Just fun, fun to see. Like it's not like competition and trying to. They're all working together in their community, and that's that. I think that uh, the the impact they all have will be even stronger because of that. Mhm, mhm. I mean, I kind of can I be y'all friend? 
like y'all look like you have a good time. Like we the same age. Like can we can we be friends? I want to kick it with y'all. Yeah, <laughs> y'all might y'all need some academic in these spaces. I'm sure. I know. You we know. we got podcasts. We know how to have fun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the media. <laughs> Uh, yeah but this was good this was good shout out to adrian for for coming to chat with us i'm sure we'll uh be keeping in touch with you if we have any want any more expert deep dives on some of the things that i'm sure will come out we'll make sure we'll keep tabs on you and what you're doing and and maybe bring you back on again i'm sure there'll be some topics to that we'll need to discuss um but other than that, follow us on social media at BHD Podcast. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, follow us on our website or go to our website to keep up with our latest content, www.blackandhighlydangerous.com. Email us, um, bhdpodcast at gmail.com with any content ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, anything, feedback, whatever it is, reach out to us. We're always responsive and we're always open to that. Uh, rate us on iTunes. We, I've seen that some of you begin to do that and leave comments. Excellent. Keep that up. Um, it really helps us out. Um, and continue to share us. Share us with your friends, share us with your family, and share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.